Be good. <laughs> Here you are again, listener, on the Monkey Tooth Podcast with Andrew Couch. My wife, Tiffany Couch, is not currently participating in the recording of this intro, and she did not record anything uh, during the actual recording of this episode. She opted to sit on the beach and absorb the sun. I don't blame her. It was a beautiful day. It was awfully nice, and that's kind of one of her favorite things to do. But when I met our guest for this episode, uh, I could not wait to get him in front of a microphone and ask him some questions. And as soon as I explained to him what this was, he couldn't wait either. Uh, his name is Russ, Russ Yuli. He's 85 years old, and he wanted to tell us about the worst day of his life. And then he told me a couple other stories, which, uh, man, I was so happy to just sit with him and, and hear his hear his tale. If you know me at all, you know I kind of I don't know. I tend to befriend old men and old people. It's just sort of my thing. I get along with old people. It feels weird to just call them old people. They're just humans who just happen to be older than me. But anyhow, Russ is way cool, and I enjoyed his tale. If you are in a hurry to hear a tale told to you, this is not the podcast for you. You got to go to another show, or come back next time, or come back to this show when you got some time to relax and just take in an older gentleman telling you some stories. That's exactly what this is. Uh, we're currently sitting outside of Port Angeles and the Olympic Peninsula. You gotta come out here. The Olympic Peninsula is amazing. We've been uh, to the rainforest, we've been on the coast, we've been in the Strait of Juan de Fuca, we've seen eagles and raven and all kinds of other amazing animals. We're currently being hovered upon by a giant helicopter. Wow. Uh, this this place is amazing. You just got to get out here. Go see Lake Crescent. Um, go check out the uh, amazing Indian tribes that are around, the indigenous tribes. Um, we got to go sit at a potluck uh, and listen to some drummers and singers and dancers uh, perform at this cultural center uh, actually at a tribal school it's way way cool anyhow the the peninsula it's worth checking out if you haven't been out here it's a free advertisement for these guys okay uh thank you itunes reviews those are huge all the people who've written them we thank you so much all the people who are planning on doing that as soon as uh, this podcast is over we thank you in the future uh, thank you to our patreon.com subscribers. That's patreon.com forward slash monkey tooth. We really appreciate your, uh, your support. GoFundMe supporters, we love you so much. Thank you so much for all your, all your help. Um, and if you're just listening to this for free, we don't blame you. It's, uh, it's just gratifying to know that you're out there. If you want, drop us a line at mtp.dog forward slash contact. Or you can go to our Instagram page or Facebook. We're on there. Just search Monkey Tooth Podcast and you'll find us. 
All right, that's all I'm going to say now because I really want to get to to Mr. Russ Yuli here, um, and we hope to hear from you, and we hope you're enjoying the show. All right, bye bye. You told me you got a story to tell me about the worst day of your life. Well, it's one of the worst it's days, but it's so extreme. That's why it's a story. Yeah. No one could have so many things happen in one period of time. Starts with two RVs and only one driver, me. My name is Russ, and I'm 85 years old, and I lived during the summer months in 11 North Washington. And this story that I'm going to tell today uh, happened to me several years ago. I was in Arizona and I decided I needed to buy a new motorhome. So I went to a sales yard and I bought a brand new Fleetwood 32 foot motorhome. Uh, this meant that I had two motorhomes. I had a new one and I had my previous one. Well, we decided that we would try to sell the previous motorhome and if we didn't sell it, later I would come to Mesa and drive it up to Seattle, Washington and sell it up there because it's easier to sell. There aren't so many thousands of motorhomes for sale. Okay, so the day started at 3 a.m. when we drove to the Boise Airport and got on the Red Eye Express to Sky Harbor in Phoenix, Arizona. The flight went well, everything went well, good flight. We got in, it was early morning, a bright sunny day. My motorhome that I was gonna drive back to Seattle was sitting by the gate. The people had been out and, and uh, made sure it was gassed up and it was uh, a ready to roll. So I got in the motorhome and started back to Washington State. I drove to Quartzsite on Highway 10 and uh, stopped and checked the oil and did a couple things and then drove across the Canadian, the, the California uh, border. And uh, shortly after crossing the border, you come to the uh, freeway that goes the other direction up to Las Vegas. I took the exit and stopped at the stop sign and when I stopped at the stop sign, suddenly everything stopped in my vehicle. I'm walking, yeah, the day and I'm talking. But you and me, I'm hoping that you come back to me. Mm-hmm. I'm lonely as I can be. I'm waiting for your company. I'm hoping that you come back to me. What you gonna do in a well run drive? No power, no motor. I couldn't rock it. I couldn't do anything. So I got out of the motor home. I had many, many trucks and many, many cars on the access 
road going to this freeway, which is a major, major, major road. And I got out my cell phone. I called AAA and told them I was broke down and told them where I was at, told them what my vehicle was, and told them I needed help because it was a dangerous spot. Meanwhile, I got out and started directing traffic. Okay, I thought this would be a very short period of time because one of the fellows that stopped was on the phone almost immediately with the police department in Blythe, California, telling them about the problem. Okay, I'm out there, and I'm directing traffic, and I'm directing traffic, and I'm directing traffic. Over an hour goes by, probably an hour and a half. Finally, a police car pulls up, and the gentleman gets out, and he says, what are you doing here? And I said, well, it should be obvious. I'm broken down. I can't move my vehicle at all. He says, I'll tell you something. See that bush over there? You go and sit right under that bush. He said, I've already treated two or three cases. I can't remember what he said, two or three, of sunstroke today. And he says, I'll take it over. And I thought, well, he's going to start directing traffic. But he didn't. I went and sat under the bush. He got back in his car, rolled down the window a little bit, stuck his arm out the window, and directed traffic from inside of the air-conditioned police car. Meanwhile, I'm on the phone again with AAA, and they're getting information from me. Now, let's see, Mr. Yuli, are you, where are you? I said, well, I'm on the main freeway between Phoenix, Arizona, and Los Angeles, California, two cities that should be well-known, <laughs> Highway 10. I said, I'm right at the turnoff to go north to Las Vegas. I'm right there. They said, is that Northern California or Central California or is that Southern California? I said, look, is this geography lesson? I don't know. I'm calling for help. I need someone to get my vehicle out of here. They said, finally they said, after the policeman got on the line and chewed on him for a little bit, telling him how bad traffic was backed up, they said, we'll get a vehicle there as soon as we can. We can't tell you when. Okay, so we were both sitting there waiting for the vehicle to come. And finally, we spot a wrecker coming. He pulls around all the backup and comes up and looks at my motorhome and says, I can't do a thing for you. He said, you got too big a motorhome. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, I cannot do a thing for you. So meanwhile, I'm on the phone. I'm calling up AAA. You got the wrong record here. Get a bigger one out here. My motorhome is 32 feet long. Okay, we'll do the best we can. It's probably going to have to come from quartzite. They said it'll probably be quite a wait. Well, fortunately, it worked out pretty good. Here come the record. It was only probably 25 minutes. He pulled up alongside of me and said, everything looks fine, I'll hook onto you. So he hooked onto me and pulled me out of the uh, intersection and drove into Blythe, California. We arrived in Blythe, he pulled up alongside the curb in front of a uh, repair facility and disconnected and took off. He had another call.
so I'm sitting there, and he's gone, and nobody's coming out of the repair place. So I go into the repair place, and I said, apparently you knew I was coming. I missed Yuli. My motorhome was broke down, and I need to leave with you. The guy looked out the window, and he said, hey, that's gas-driven. He says, we only do diesel. So I go back on the phone, and I call up AAA again. Get your truck back here. He dropped me off at a service facility that does not do gasoline vehicles. Okay, so then I waited about 30 minutes. Here come the guy back. He said, I'm sure sorry. I didn't realize what I was doing. He hooks up on me, and he takes me into town, into Blythe, pulls up at the curb, unhooks, takes off, because the guy's even waiting longer now, the man that he was dispatched to go to after me. And I'm sitting there in my vehicle, and nobody's coming out of this place. So I finally go up and I walk in. I said, is somebody gonna give me some service here? I said, mine broken down. And I said, apparently you know I'm coming. And the fellow said, we're closed. I said, you're kidding. He says, we closed at 4.30. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll meet you here at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. I said, nine o'clock tomorrow morning, what am I gonna do? I'm 2,000 from home, 2,000 miles from home, and I got a motor home that has no en engine. He says, no big problem, there's a motel right there. He says, they have a special one. And I said, well, I'll tell you one thing, I'm not checking into the motel. I said, even though my vehicle won't work, I'll bet the air conditioning will. So I turned on the air conditioning and I read, and I read, and I read, and I read. At 3 a.m., it was 91, oh. and I forgot to tell you earlier in the story when I was directing traffic, it was 20, it was 121. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, 9 o'clock in the morning, i am been up for hours. I'm out there standing by the door of his shop. He doesn't come. He doesn't come. What am I going to do? 10 o'clock, he drives in. He goes into his shop and doesn't even come out to my rig, and I finally couldn't take it any longer. I said, are you gonna give me some attention, or what are we gonna do here? He said, well, take a look at it. He says, crack your hood. So I did, he walks over and looks at it and says, oh, you've had it, you need a new engine. I said, a new engine? He says, oh yeah, he says, this has gotten hot, it's frozen up, he said, I'll, I'll have to close my shop, he said, for a whole week, put everybody on your motorhome. Well, I've take the front off of it to get at the engine. He said, the last one I did was, after I asked him how much, he said it was around $14,000 for a reconditioned motorhome. I said, well, I'll tell you one thing, I'm not paying $14,000. Is there anybody in Blythe that'll buy a motorhome that's got a bad engine? He said, well, yeah, there might be a couple guys. I can call them. I said, well, get on the phone, call them. I, I'm going to have to do something. I'm 2,000 miles from home. So he, he leaves, and he never comes back. Finally, I can't take it any longer. I go, and, what are you doing on my motorhome? He said, well, I found one guy that he's willing to buy it for $1,000. I said, my tires are worth more than that, I said, I got new tires on there. I paid, I can't remember, $300, $400 a tire. 
Anyhow, he said, well, that's the best I can do. I said, well, it looks like I'm really in trouble then. And he said, ah, he said, I got a thought. He said, my wife and I, now this is where I don't know about the story. My wife and I have been thinking about getting a motor home. He says, and this looks to be really in good shape except for the engine. He says, well, let me look in here. And so he goes in, and I, I got it all. It's real nice, not as nice as this, but nice. And I got a brand-new mattress, and it's still in the, in the case, everything, TV, dot, 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 dot. I'm thinking I'm 2,000 miles away. And even if I sell it, I got all of this stuff inside. What am I going to do? So anyhow, this a little bit later, this lady comes, and she says, I'm the wife of Joe Blow, who's in charge of the maintenance facility here. She said, I'd like to look at your motor home. I said, fine. I took her in. Look when she said, this is nice. This is just about what we need. She said, I'll go tell my husband that I, I like it. I thought, well, this is going to be good. So she goes in pretty soon. I go in because they didn't come back out. And I go in, and I say, he says, I'll tell you what. He says, I'll give you $2,000. And he said, you don't have the title with you, so I'll give you $1,000 now. And then when you get the title for me, I'll give you another 1000 He says, in addition to that, everything you got inside, I'll ship to you. I thought, well, this sounds like a real funny deal. But then I thought, what? I guess I might as well accept it and bite the bullet. I've just lost a lot of money. So anyhow, to make a long story short, we made a deal. He gave me $1,000. I agreed to get the right paperwork to him. He agreed to send the stuff to me. And I'm standing out on the street then, and suddenly it dawns on me. Russ, you're in Blythe, California. You're 2,000 miles from home, and you don't have any transportation. So about that time, this guy that bought the motorhome from me, he says, I'll tell you what, I'll have the kid take you in the pickup up to the car rental place. I said, great, I'd really appreciate it. So the kid gets in the pickup, comes, picks me up. We tear up to the car. I go through all the story and make out the papers. And they said, now, Mr. Yuley, when will you return the car? Mama, if you want your ashes, I'll step right up in line. Cause you can't get your ashes all lagging way behind. I said, I'm not going to return the car. I'm taking the car to the airport in Phoenix, and I'm flying to Seattle. They said, oh, we don't do that. We can't rent your car. I said, well, is there some place in this town where I can catch a bus to Phoenix? They said, oh, yeah, Greyhound. Where are they? Oh, they're on the other end of town. He said, oh, I don't know how many miles. He said, you go that way, and you turn left, and you turn right, and, and there you are at Greyhound. And so 
I'm discouraged. I go out. I'm go out of his place. I'm standing out there, trying to figure out what to do. A guy comes out of the next building, and walks by, and he says, "You look like you're having a bad day." I said, "Well, I am. My motorhome just uh, blew up, and I thought I'd rent a car, but I guess I can't. I have to go to Greyhound." He said, "Well, I'm going uptown." He says, "I can get you a lot closer." So I jump in, and he takes me, and. We get to talk, and he says, I'll tell you what. He says, you've had enough grief today. I'll take you right to Greyhound. So he takes and drives over to Greyhound. He, he says, i got to get going. He takes off, and I'm standing at Greyhound. I got one bag. That's all I got. And uh, I get out. I walk up to the front door, and there's a big sign on the door. This terminal closed forever. Oh. I'm still 2,000 miles away. Now I'm at a closed Greyhound. Uh, there's a bum there. I, pardon the expression, but he, there's the backwoods behind the Greyhound is full of, of uh, Viz Queen and cardboard and people that are camping out there. And this bum sitting on this bench that I'm sitting on, and he says to me, were you trying to catch the Greyhound? I said, yeah. He said, well, if you go up to that McDonald's up there, they'll sell you a ticket to Phoenix. I said, really? He said, yeah, they'll sell you a ticket. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? I can't carry this bag. So I get, I was going to leave my baggage with this guy. I never met it before. Never needed. And so anyhow, I leave it. I take a chance. I leave it. I hoof it up to uh, McDonald's, and it's right at, right during a busy time, and they have a line that goes clear to the door, and I get in the line, and I finally get up there, and I said, I'd like to buy a, a bus ticket to Phoenix. They said, oh, we no longer do that. We stopped two weeks ago doing that. And I said, you don't do that? No, we don't do it anymore. Okay, I said to myself, Russ, you're 2,000 miles, you still don't know, have any wheels, you don't know what you're doing. So I hook back, expecting the bum to be gone. I get back there, and he's there. He's happy to greet me. Unbelievably, a wonderful guy. He says, I'll tell you what. He says, if you wait here, the buses come by, and they'll still stop here because they drop people off to go into McDonald's and get a, uh, some food. They're on their way to Dallas, he said. And so I thought, well, I, I don't have anything to do. I'll wait. So pretty soon, here comes a, a big bus, and it says Dallas on the front. I'm out there, and I flag him down. And I said, I'm having nothing but grief. And I told him a little bit of the story. And he said, well, I'm sorry. I can't do a thing for you. He says, all my, all my uh, seats are full. He says, but I'll tell you what. I got a buddy that's going to come by here probably in about 30 minutes. And if you don't mind waiting, may truck flag him down. Maybe you can get a ride. So I went back and sat by the bum. He's there. He's keeping me entertained. Nice guy. And he told me about all the grief and everything and he's got in his life. And anyhow, here comes a bus. Here's Russ out here waving him down. <laughs> and I said, tell him the story. And he said, well, he says, I'll tell you what. I got one seat left on the bus. He said, do you have any money? He looked at me and the bum standing there. Do you have any money? I said, yeah, I got money. He said, well, give me $25. 
and I'll take you into the town, he said, and we can go in and you can settle up. Either you pay me a little more or I'll give you all your money back. He said, get on board. So I go up and open the door and a whole bus full of people. They're going to Dallas. One seat back there. A bunch of young guys there. Guys younger than you. Mm. One seat right in the middle. There I am. This old guy with all these young guys. Who are they? They're a rock band. (laughs) They're coming to Phoenix to take diesel mechanics training because the gigs are not creating enough money for them to live their life. So there I am sitting there surrounded by these guys. I don't understand their language. I don't understand what they're talking about. And But I'm in there. I'm, I'm now the centerpiece of a rock band. We finally get to the terminal. I go in and I straighten up and everything. And then I'm standing there thinking, hey, now I'm at the terminal, but I'm not at the airport. I'm still 2,000 miles from home with no wheels. So I'm standing there wondering what to do. And there's a guy with a big, long van loading bags in there. And I said, uh, what's going on here? He says, oh, I'm taking these people over to the airport. I said, well, Maybe you're an answer to my prayer. I said, my motorhome broke down. I said, I've been walking, hitchhiking. I didn't tell you about all that. Directing traffic, doing all these. I'm finally here, but I'm at the bus station. I need to be at the airport. He says, throw your stuff on. He says, what the boss doesn't know won't hurt him. (laughs) So I throw my stuff on. We start to the airport. I'm sitting like here in the co-pilot seat in his van, and we get. I'm telling him my story, and he's, anyhow, he's so engrossed, he drives right by the terminal he's supposed to drop me off at. There's three terminals in, 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 in Sky Harbor. So I, he finally stops at Terminal 3. I'm supposed to be at Terminal 1. And he says, you go to here, go to this building, go on the elevator up to the sixth floor, do this, go down the escalator, do this, do that. Uh, finally, I fight my way through the building and the downs and ups, and and I arrive in the big area that's got all the ticket sales. And I go up, no ticket, no ticket, no ticket. I go to everybody on the whole floor. Nobody's got a ticket for me. I'm telling the story to this gal from Southwest and gals on tickets at the next one hears our conversation and she says to this lady that's helping me, why don't you try to see if you can get him to Las Vegas? Maybe we can get him on a plane to Las Vegas up to Seattle. Well, good idea, she said. Go down there and go to uh, Security. So I go down, I get in line, I come up there. They look at me, one little suitcase, no ticket. Sit right in that chair right there, they said. Everybody's going to, I'm sitting in this chair. Finally, everybody's through, they come to me, and they said, take off your shoes. I took off my shoes. They went over me with all the electronic gear, 
and all that. Meanwhile, I can hear the two guys that have my bag over there. They're making fun of me. And I said, look at here, he's still got CDs. And the guy said, yeah, and here, look at here, he's got bull neckties. And they, they're making fun of me, you know. And finally, they released me. I got to go. So I rushed back up, and she says, yes, I got you on a plane to Las Vegas. I said, great. And what gate? They told me the gate. Da, da. You're going to have to hurry. So I hurry as fast as I can over there. And I get there, and there's a sign. The gate has been changed. Okay, I'm almost out of time. I run. This is really a big place, yeah, by the way. It's a big airport. I I get finally I get over to the right gate, and I get on. Well, I had to check my bag first because it wouldn't fit under the seat. It was a little bit too big, so I got that checked. Got on the plane. The plane flew to Las Vegas with no problems. Everything was wonderful. I got to Las Vegas and I asked them if, they, if I'm some way I get to Seattle. They said, we got one seat left on so-and-so airplane. And I said, fine. So then I thought, well, if I get to Seattle, I still have to get home. I know what I'll do. I'll call my daughter. So I called my daughter on the phone for probably only the second or third time in the whole year. She and her husband and family were at the Seattle Mariners baseball game. I said, well, that's fine. I'm glad you're at the baseball game because you'll be fairly close to the airport. When the game's over, we should just be about synchronized. Come and pick me up. Fine, she said. So we, I left it like that. I got on the airplane eventually. Oh, I, I, I mentioned, I, they lost my bag. I was the last one off. And they lost my bag. And they took me into this room. It had glass windows all on one side. And they gave me a pair of binoculars. And they said, now look out there on the floor and see if you see your bag. And I looked out there and I said, yeah, I see it. They said, go out and get it. So I went out and got my bag. That was one of the reasons I was so rushed. Yeah. I got my bag. Okay, we get on the airplane to go to Las Vegas. Everything's great. And... Uh, I call my daughter, arrange to be picked up, get on the plane. I'm on the last seat. It's by the emergency door. I'm long. They, they, they had me by the emergency door. The stewardess noticed that I was long and I was in this seat. The lady that's there, there's only two seats on that side. She's a very elderly Afro-American lady that has never flown in her life. She's petrified. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling her it's nothing. You know, I've flown everywhere, and I'm telling her all these stories. About that time, the stewardess comes to give me some last-minute instruction in case they need me. I'm supposed to do thus and thus. And that just, this lady just goes, goes out of it, this, this lady that was sitting next to me. I said, come, be calm, be calm. And be calm. I said, well, get back to Seattle. I'm going to go. And she says, where do you live? And I told her. She says, oh, my daughter lives in Redmond. Maybe you know her. Mary Smith. I said, Mary Smith? I said, do you realize there are 600,000 people on the side of the lake? Anyhow, I spent the whole flight to Seattle getting this lady calm. I told her, when you get off the plane, I'll go with you, and we'll make sure you're with your daughter. 
Okay, so we land in Seattle. Plane, not, nothing wrong with the flight, wonderful. We land in Seattle. We get off the plane. There's only one problem. I, I connect the lady up to her daughter. My daughter is not there. I'm on the phone. Jan, where are you? Well, we're still at the game. Well, what's going on? Well, the game's going into overtime. But we should be there soon. So I wait an hour and I call Jan. Where are you? Well, we're going into the 11th inning. The game's still tied. I wait another hour. I go shave. I read. I buy a magazine. I snack. And I call you on 13th inning. Where are you? Well, we think the game's about over. I said, you've been telling me that for hours. Okay. Finally, I call. She says, I think the game is just ending. We should be there in a half hour. Okay, about a half hour that goes by. Sure enough, they pull in right in front of the door where I'm waiting. Great. It's 1.30 in the night. And my son-in-law hops out, grabs my bag, throws in the back of his Jeep-type vehicle. I don't know what it was. Jumps in. Meanwhile, the guy on the loudspeaker is saying, well, all the vehicles along the curb, move. You're going to be impounded and you know they're just really after you to keep moving my son-in-law jumps in turns the key tries to get his vehicle won't start but Feel like a broke down engine, mama. Ain't got no driving wheel. Feel like a broke down engine, darling. Ain't got no driving wheel. You've been down and lonesome. You know exactly how a good man feels. This really makes the guy on the intercom mad. He's got security and everybody there. We can't get, none of us can do anything on this. Finally, this guy notices that when Scott threw in the baggies, the baggies, he bumped some lever there that put it into a different mode. I don't know, I don't even know what I'm telling you. Anyhow, they moved the lever. It started. Get out of here, Scott. Let's get out of here. Get me home. So he gets on, gets out of there, and we drive out the back route, going home. At 17 miles, I think it is. Everything was 17 miles was fine. We pull up in front of my home. I'm almost there, but my wife's in Indianapolis. I'm just coming. My spare key is hanging on a nail at the neighbor's house. Okay, I'm going to the neighbor's to get the key for my garage so I can get into my house. As I approach his house, I notice something's different. The whole house is surrounded with construction tape and signs, do not cross, wet paint, and all of the pavement around his whole place is garage, his carport, his driveway, everything's painted 
I thought, this is the last straw. I'll tell you what, I'm going to walk right through it, and I'll repair it tomorrow. I walked through it, turned the lock on my door, went into my bedroom, threw myself on the bed, <laughs> and went to sleep. Didn't wake up for nine hours. <sighs> I thought, that is what you call a bad day. You ain't got to put in my house. Good Lord, they only lead her up to my door. But Lord, 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 Lord. I left out a lot because there were more things that happened, but. Like what? Said you were hitchhiking. Hitchhiking. Yeah, there I am with a bag, and I was dressed fairly nice. You know, I didn't look like a typical. A hitchhiker, not that there is a typical hitchhiker, because there isn't. Right. But several times people helped me. I don't know how they recognized that I needed help. I I was so down that I was, I had almost felt like crying. I mean, that's really an extreme position for that me. A, yeah. But I mean, I just couldn't hardly take any more things going wrong. Uh, one guy picked me up, and I don't know what he—I I didn't know what he was, but he was some sort of a prevert. Oh, great. Right? And so uh, I, I got out of that. But I had uh, other guys that picked me up that took me beyond where they were really going because they tried to help me. I had the guy that helped me with the, uh, with the luggage, says boss wouldn't know. I had all kinds of good people. Yeah. That helped me out. Well, I like I like the fact that you were able to be a good guy in that story on top of it. You helped a lady who was worried about her daughter and worried about flying. Any opportunity you got to be the good guy, you, you went ahead and did that. Well, yeah, I don't, and I can't tell you how I, how I kept my composure through all that. That was a terrible experience. Yeah. I planned to tell you about falling over a cliff. This is a pretty good story. We live in a home that started as a cabin. Now it's either a cabin or a home. It's sort of a hybrid. We're on a bluff 100 feet above the river, 180 degrees out in front, and the river takes a horseshoe bend right below our place. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. On the bank, I have uh, bird feeders. Oh, nice. And I have a trail that I've walked on since 1964 with a long pole, and I put the feed into these bird feeders. Well, this trail that I'd walked on for many years, uh, I'm walking along, and suddenly the bank sloughed off. And just before I started to feed, I had never done it in 40 or 50 or 60 years, I thought, if I ever fell, I'd be lost because it's rock. Yeah. And I said, maybe I should tie something around me or something in case I fall over or I won't go all the way. So for the first time, I took a nylon rope. It was a half-inch nylon rope, and I tied it around this wrist, I guess. This wrist. I tied it, and then I took the other and tied it around a, a large pine tree, big one. Well, as I'm walking to the bird feeder, the bank sloughs off, 
and I'm thrown off into space because the bank is undercut. Oh my gosh. It's undercut. And when it gets when that, when that rope gets taunt, just a terrific shock and then I swing back into the into the uh, bank and knocks all the wind out of me and there I am hanging by one wrist. Uh, probably about 15 feet down from the top and probably about 80 feet up from the river. Wow. There's no vegetation uh, and it's sandstone. So when you try to dig in, it just turns to sand. There's no vegetation. I can't get a hand grip. I can't get a toe grip. There's nothing to hold on to. And I'm laying there up against the bank, trying to figure out how I'm going to get out of this situation. There's nobody around. The people that live below me are gone to Seattle, and the people on the other side are gone someplace. There's nobody there. My wife is not there because she's down at Plain Hardware (laughs) with my daughter having latte or something. And uh, finally I decided, well, if I'm going to get out of this, i got to have help. So I started yelling, help, if anybody can hear me, I need help. I'd been hanging there for about an hour. Wow. Okay, now now here comes the miracle of the story. No answer, nothing. Suddenly, I think I hear a motor a long ways away. And I look way up the river, and I'm not sure that I see some, I think I see movement. I'm not sure. Anyhow, two guys had driven 140 miles to come to this house up the river and put a roof on a shed. They were going to be there four hours. They allowed four hours for the job. One of them said, I think I hear something. The other one says, well, you got better hearing than me. I don't hear anything. He says, I think I should go see if there's something happening up the river. So he gets in his old truck and drives up the river. And there I am hanging up against the bank. And suddenly a face appears over the edge and says, hey, fella, you need help? I said, no, I sure don't do this for fun. I need help. (laughs) He says, I'll tell you what, I'll get my brother and we'll be right back. So he goes and driving away, and I thought, well, I sure hope he comes back. Well, pretty soon they were back, two of them. And uh, the guy says, you got a rope? I said, yeah, my shed's door's open right up at the top of the bank. Just go. He said, and I said, I got a, a mountain climber rope in there. I said, I'm not a mountain climber, but I, I got a nice rope. It's about that big around. Yeah. He says, well, I am a mountain climber. I said, you're kidding. So anyhow, pretty soon they throw it over and he, I, I don't know what you call it, he comes down the rope, ties it under my arms and all that, and yells up to his brother, okay, pull him up. Brother calls back, I can't do it, I'm, I'm not strong enough. So the guy goes up the rope again, the two of them pull me up to the top. Well, meanwhile, I'm learning that the two guys are firemen. Oh, wow. They're mountain climbers. I have a mountain rope, which I never had used for anything. I got it as an inheritance from a cousin that was a mountain climber. And I got to the top, 
I started when I got thrown into the bank, nobody there but me. When I got to the top, 21 people waiting for me. The fire department, forest service, dot, dot. even my minister was there. Wow. He heard on the cell phone that there was an old guy hanging on the edge of the bank at the Chihuahua River, and he was the chaplain for the fire department. So he hurried over there, and here I said, you guys covered, when I got calm, I said, you guys covered all the bases. You even have a minister here. Yeah. <laughs> You're a well-loved guy. But anyhow, it made the newspaper, it made TV. Wow. And I, did, it, did it break my, your wrist? No, but I had a uh, welt or whatever you'd call yeah. it. Uh, a year and a half later, I still had the welt. Wow. It took years, two years. So when I told the story, I could oh, show gosh. my wrist. Yeah. And uh, that was that was that was fairly recent. That was about four or five years ago. Wow. Lots of lots of weird things have happened in my life. By probably giving you more than you need. No, no, it, I could. I'm glad could. to do it, but it, maybe it'll encourage me to get to writing in my life storybook. What are you going to call it? Do you have a title? Uh, I don't know. Right now, I'm uh, at the beginning of the Second World War. Wow. My dad has moved to a place where there's a shipyards, hmm. and across from my house is a ballpark and a former Navy base, and I'm into sports big time, and the town is into sports big time. We have won the national championship in Little League, Babe Ruth, women's softball, everything. Kirkland, Washington is famous. They have the girls' World Series in Kirkland, Washington. Oh, okay. uh, and anyhow, I'm... I'm, now I'm up to the point where the men are all in the military and the women are playing softball. Yeah. Now, I guess there's a movie out on that now. I haven't seen it. A League of Their Own. Yeah. How, how old were you when, when this I was? I was nine. Nine. And uh, the, it's, I, I got stories that this carnival would come and set up there across from my house. And they had boxers and wrestlers and you know all the all the sideshows that they have you know i i just would wander through there i was just a, a young kid yeah you know and then i got a little bit bigger and our ballpark for the major hardball i helped build the fence around it and then we built a radio booth on top of the grandstand my brother and i and they broadcast all the games in our little town. You know, I mean, and yeah. it was a really a big deal. I I'll mean, bet. a really big deal. Bet. Unless you were there, you don't realize what a big deal it was. Right. Everybody in town came to everything. And where's Kirkland from Seattle? Across the lake. Just across the lake. The lake's three miles wide. Is it like Union or like, what's the, what's the lake? No, Lake Washington. Lake Washington. 26 okay. miles long, three miles wide. Wow. 
When we came from North Dakota, for the first time we rode a train, we went through a tunnel, we came to Seattle, we got off at King Street Station, we got on a bus for the first time, we got into downtown Seattle, we got a transfer, got on another bus, went to Lake Washington, got on a ferry boat, which we never knew, and when we got there, there was a, a, a man with a 34 Chrysler waiting to pick up our family. Uh, he'd been had a letter that said the Uleys were coming to Kirkland. Please arrange transportation. He loaded us up. There were so many of us. There were nine children. I was the oldest, and my youngest was a baby. And um, this lady had taken some of her agricultural buildings and turned them into living quarters because people were renting for like 10, 12-hour shifts. You'd get out of bed, go to the shipyard, someone else would come. Yeah. That's the way it was. And yeah. So we were living in agricultural buildings. Your mom, your dad, and And, all, and those, all of us kids. Wow. And then the government came and built three housing projects, and we were one of the first families into that housing project. And uh, I got fantastic stories. Well, I hope you're writing them down. <laughs> I'm trying to. Yeah. I'm trying to. I had the largest paper out. I had 300 customers, and uh, I, I had to hire a couple of my brothers to help me on Sundays because they were so heavy. Yeah. And <clears throat> when I went to college, I... And this is another part of my... I, I'm telling you too much. No, you're not. When it's I went right. to college, um, I worked full-time when I went to college. I had five jobs. Five jobs okay. while in school. Okay, I'm going to tell you about the four part-time jobs. Okay. I was a counterman at the bowling alley. I ran the addressograph and folding machine at the newspaper. I uh, I worked for Smythe the Smoother Mover as a furniture mover, and I took my dad as my swamper if I needed a swamper. And I, I right now, off the top of my head, I can't remember what my fourth one was. What's a swamper? He's the guy that helps you move heavy things. Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, I had, at one time, I had the paper out where I'd push this old lawnmower around the whole hill and charge $1, no matter what size. You know, I can, I mean, it's ridiculous. What a deal. <laughs> yeah, and I had lots of customers, as you can imagine. Yeah, I'll bet. And, okay, then the way that I paid my way through college is I worked from 1030 at night till seven every morning unloading boxcars. Oh, that's real work. So that's a lot. When of work. I graduated, I quit. Yeah, good the move. The warehouse. Good move. I yeah. bet you were strong as an ox. Well, I used to weigh two twenty-five, two thirty. Now I'm way down. I can't believe this is my body anymore. But anyhow. I've had, and I, you, I can tell you stories about working at that warehouse. They built the Kingdom there, if you've heard of the Kingdom. Kingdom, that's they tore yeah. They tore down the warehouse I worked in and built the, the Kingdom, which was a large concrete sports center, very large, held like 70,000 people. Yes. It's been now, the only thing that is anything like it is the one, University of Phoenix, you know. Mm. But it's not a dome like the right. one in Seattle. Not the same. It's very nice and 
more modern. And later, I was able to do some work in the kingdom. That was fun because I worked there as yeah. <laughs> as a college student in the warehouse. If you had the opportunity, let's just say that this was time travel, and you were sitting in front of yourself at age 39, and you're age 85, what would you tell yourself right now? If you could go back in time, oh, if I could go back? reach to your younger self and I give don't think I don't think I'd change very much. I was born on a farm in North Dakota, and the Depression hit, and the, the, my grandpa owned a farm, and his boys, as they became men, they couldn't support their families. Hmm. So the, a lot of the men, the, the boys that became men, had to go get another job. So that's why my dad moved to Washington. So moving to Washington was a key thing for me because I had a lot of experiences. We moved to a town that had 450 people in it. It's got 190,000 now. Uh -huh. But there there were 15,000 people on the side of the lake. There's six or 700,000 now. Yeah. I, I was part of all this, wow. you know. And uh, I went to high school there. Like, I, I could write a book on high school experiences. I was known as Einstein Uli. Einstein Uli. And I was the head of the science club. And my kids didn't seem to have interests like I did. So my nephew, I started him out, and he has now got his Ph.D. from MIT, and he is the head of the department at Houghton College in New York. Wow. And That's a bright guy. Yeah, and that was because I started out in that science club. I wasn't I wasn't great, but you know I was in the senior play, and uh, you know I got all these, and I guess what I'm saying at 39, I didn't think any of this was going to happen. I'm from a little podunk town in North Dakota that moved to a little podunk town in Washington State. And look at all the things that have happened to me. Yeah, you said I never countries. applied for work in my life. Really? Never and every, for all my kids and grandkids tell me they can't find work, and I tell them I could find work in one hour. Yeah, sounds you like know, it. I, you know, I mean, I could. Yeah. And I, so I don't understand. Sure. Grandpa doesn't understand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to be a. I've got a degree and. You know, I want to. Be, I want. I don't want to take a job like that, so I'll go on unemployment or something. I don't. I don't understand all that stuff because, from the time I, you know, was nine years old, I was fending for myself. Yeah, sounds like it. But times are different. They are different. I understand that, and I, I try not to judge anybody, but I have gotten all my kids pretty. Pretty great jobs now, and my son-in-laws. And just not judging anybody sounds like pretty good advice. Yeah, I don't. I don't judge them. I've I've helped several of them get jobs, but uh, so I'm looking back on a long time, 85 years. Sounds like you did it all right. Well, I could have done things different. I made mistakes like everybody else. Sure. But I did some some good things. Right now, I've outlived my money and my body. That's what I tell them. Well, you got good use out of both, it sounds I said, like. 
I didn't plan to live this long. <laughs> well, I'm certainly glad you did. We'll meet again. Don't know where. Don't know when. But I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Keep smiling through just like you always do till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away. Hi, Tiffany here, saying thank you for listening to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you haven't already, or it's been a while, check out our website, mtp.dog. There's plenty of information there. An About tab with a little bio on Andrew, myself, and our dog Pele. There's also a Van Build tab, detailing how we did our van conversion. A Journal tab, and we, as an Andrew, are doing our best to keep that up to date. And last but not least, a contact tab, where you can leave your thoughts, suggestions, or questions. You can also contact us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram, Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you would like to donate and or subscribe to the cause, you can go to Patreon and GoFundMe at Monkey Tooth Podcast. Patreon is not just a place to subscribe. We post lots of content there as well. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Love to all. So, honey, keep on smiling through, just like you always do, till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away. And would you please say hello to all the folks that I know, and tell them I won't be long. They'll be happy to know that as you saw me go, I was singing the song. We'll meet again, don't know where.